While the nation watches high-profile races, ballot initiatives plant seeds of change. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. So just as I was thinking about this, a headline marches across my screen. New York Times providing the diving board for today. Across the country, voting issues are on the ballot. Abortion and guns are too. Its subtitle is Ballot Initiatives on an Array of Issues Offer an Opportunity to Take the Nation's Temperature, Particularly When It Comes to Voting Access. Now, I'm already in somewhat of agreement and somewhat of not agreement. I think the ballot initiatives show what's important to people or important to corporations or whoever the sponsors are, important politically, but on a really nitty gritty issue by issue basis. And then it'll also provide a litmus test of what people feel about those issues or think or what they want. It, I think, shows regional differences. You can clearly see with like the abortion issue where where people break one way or the other. Yes, it's red and blue, but some places you can see by the strength of the language in some of these abortion initiatives where they think that the political center is. So I picked a few that I'm keeping an eye on. And so today is election day. I'm recording this on election day. When you hear this, it'll be the next day. I'm not sure all the ballot initiatives will be counted by then, if you'll know the answers. But I just feel like these are ones that were important. And if I explain a few of the issues, you'll understand the implications when you hear what comes through. Now, the one thing or two things, I guess, that really bothers me about the ballot initiatives and the reason that I took an interest in this where I was like, wow, this this is the most important thing to me because we're voting. We're voting in our house. Like I see now what mail-in ballots really do. It's like your house votes as a block <laughs> the way like the electoral colleges because you can talk about it because you're sitting there with the ballots. I have a son who has Down syndrome. We do not tell our children how to vote, but we have discussions. So the proposition one here is an abortion constitutional amendment regarding abortion. So we're, we are voting primarily to make sure uh, that we cast our votes on that issue and that issue alone. I don't know what is going on here, but my husband didn't even know that Gavin Newsom was running for uh, re-election. I mean, that's crazy. And I, I guess they just keep it on the down low and if he doesn't bring it to anybody's attention, maybe people will just, I don't know, vote for him because they don't know who the other guy is. I don't know. But the reason I'm interested in voting today is because of this particular proposition. Two things that drive me crazy is, one, how this stuff is worded. I mean, you absolutely cannot glean the policy impact of these of these amendments or some of the laws referendum just by the text alone. And on the ballot, the text is even shorter than like the full initiative. When you go to like a very, very helpful site is Ballotpedia. You go to the, it'll say ballot initiatives. And then on the right-hand side are a bunch of like little clicks that you could go to. What is the opposition saying? Who is funding these sides? It's really informative. And you can see the full text. And what I like to do, I basically would probably vote no on everything always. Like, <laughs> as a general rule, I feel like the initiatives are often like more taxes or special interests or whatever. But so the first thing I do is look at what is the opposition saying? And it lays it out pretty clearly. But then I also look at what the funding is. So the wording is really awful. You have no idea what the policy really, what the implications would be. It's 
actually easier when you can vote at home because you can start looking that stuff up. And then the amount of money can be so lopsided. So, so lopsided. I'm going to tell you about that in my particular example of Prop 1 here. There's abortion is one issue I wanted to get into. There's some marijuana legalization initiatives around the country that I wanted to mention. And there's this voting thing. I'm not going to hit what I normally hit about or what people are talking about, fair access, even gerrymandering or... um, mail-in voting, any of that. I'm not, I'm not addressing that. People are beating that to death. Like the races, like I'm not sitting here talking about the Senate or Congress or the governor's race. Everybody's talking about that stuff. And furthermore, those people and parties are proxies for policy. You're lucky if they end up doing what they say they're doing, doing what you're voting for. These are actual, these ballot initiatives are policy, like ready-made turnkey, they're going to happen. I mean, there are exceptions to that, but basically this is actual policy that's getting decided today. But one one voting thing that is bubbling up is this ranked choice voting. So that was another thing. So I'm going to cover those three things today, the abortion initiatives, the marijuana stuff, and the ranked choice voting, and read a couple of comments from listeners about other stuff. So for me, this Prop 1, I'm starting with abortion because it's first on the, on the Ballotpedia page. I hate to do this because it's such a an emotional issue, but actually, I can't think of any libertarians I know, really, not too many, who, so these are people who take the party part out of it, and you would think if you wanted to be the hardcore libertarian, you would be pro-choice, as they say, but most of the people I know who are libertarian are pro-life. So the big referenda today, there's one in California, one in Michigan, one in Vermont that offer constitutional amendments addressing abortion rights, the rights to abortion. And then Kansas and Kentucky are saying that they're clarifying that there is no constitutional right to abortion. And then in Montana, there's one that says that uh, and if someone survives an abortion, aid must be rendered. And I'll just go backwards because it's less to most. The one about rendering aid, I can understand, of course, why you would want to render aid. But, I mean, some of the arguments against that is prolonging suffering, creating a situation that's, like, impossible to live with. That it's, It's horrible. And what I think it really just points out is there's no way to patch up what this is. So if you're trying to kill somebody and it fails, is there a real way to make that right? I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't render aid. I'm just saying the fact that you're trying to to shoehorn a solution into one of the horrible risks of that, I just, I think that it's a little too curated. I think it's a bigger picture and I, I don't know what the answer is, but I don't always like taking away the judgment of somebody on the scene. I don't know. This one is really horrible. I shouldn't have started with that one. I can't stand it. So a listener contacted me from Kentucky, lives in a Catholic district, and that's where they're voting that thing about whether it's in the Constitution or not in the Constitution. They're saying the vote would be, it is not a constitutional right to abortion. And he was saying that every other ballot, including his, was rejected by the machines. So then you have to take extra steps to get your ballot counted. They can hand count it or you can start over. 
not cool. So he complained. He's registering a complaint, filing a complaint. He's actually irate about this. And I don't blame him because, and they were joking. I've been there where the poll workers joked. If you're a poll worker, please don't joke. People don't, it's, you're you're pointing out (laughs) that you're partisan, whatever. It's not a joke. And there's no doubt in my mind that some of the machines, maybe not there or whatever, but the machines can be programmed to do that, to go just, or can be calibrated too strictly to actually accept the vast majority of the ballots. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that can be done intentionally. And hopefully enough people complain like he did and it'll cause a problem. Maybe they'll do a revote if, if the vote doesn't go the way of that we want. Okay. Vermont is the first constitutional amendment I want to talk about. They call it the personal reproductive liberty amendment or whatever alteration to the constitution. And this is the language that an individual's right to personal reproductive autonomy is central to the liberty and dignity to determine one's own life course and shall not be denied or infringed unless justified by a compelling state interest achieved by the least restrictive means. So a spokeswoman for a group called the Vermonters for the Common Good says, the vague language in this proposal of, quote, the right to personal reproductive autonomy will likely be interpreted to mean taxpayers will be responsible for funding more than abortions, but it will also include fertility treatments, gender transformation, surgery, sterilizations even of minors, and any number of services and procedures that could conceivably fall under this, quote, reproductive umbrella. This vague concept goes far beyond what most people consider responsible action without informing Vermonters of the cost for taxpayers or potential impacts for minors. Okay, so for me, the reason what her comment points out is that this language, when you put a constitutional amendment in there, it's like that's a very short, broad thing to put in there. Courts are going to have to interpret that. And they could interpret it as broadly as everything that that woman said. And when it starts to get to that stuff and you have it in the constitution, seems to me that if there's a right to do something, how do you exercise a right if you don't have money and it costs money? That's why really I don't think any right can be like that. So they will probably pay for this stuff. And for me, like in California, they do that. I I wonder if I'm morally required to leave the state because I I can't stay here without paying taxes, and they use the tax money for this. And the pastor at my church says, stay and fight, like not about this particular issue. He's like, don't move to Tennessee like everybody else, stay and fight. But I just, I don't, I get that, but I don't know. But what really bothers me about these constitutional amendments that give like a right to abortion is that a right is something that is inalienable, right? You can almost define it as something inalienable, at least in part. Yet the idea, first of all, it's a competing rights issue, right? There are two human beings involved and you can say one is a potential human being or whatever, but however you define that, that's a question. That is a question. What is that? Is that, that could be a person, right? So that's just, it's an issue that needs to be decided. So if you're giving somebody a right in the constitution, you're ignoring that other potential right. So it's just not sure enough to put in the Constitution. And as a matter of fact, it's not even something that could be universally viable without modern technology. How could something be a right that wasn't even really possible prior to that? If you say, okay, you have the right to take herbs, and herbs might 
give an abortion. Okay, but then you need the right to smoke pot too, right? I could go hand in hand with that. I've always thought that these are similar issues. Like, is it privacy? Are you allowed to do whatever you want? But because it's something that can't even really be done on this scale without technical medical intervention, it can't really be a right. Maybe you have the right to make your own choice, but you don't have the right to have that thing happen because then I have to pay for it. But mo- more important, it's a, co- it's a competing rights issue. And that's why for sure, if you're going to deal with it at all, I would think it should be legislative. But that is not what California wants to do either. California wants a constitutional right to reproductive freedom. It is called a legislative constitutional amendment. And it says, we would amend California's constitution to expressly include an individual's fundamental right to reproductive freedom, which includes the fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and the fundamental right to choose or refuse contraceptives. So you can choose to have one, but do you, do you have a right to actually be provided with one? I mean, this is weird. The amendment does not narrow or limit the existing rights to privacy and equal protection under the California Constitution. I mean, I do, I think they should fold in the right to choose or refuse prophylactic gene therapy, right? I mean, there's just, when they're talking about rights, they're really not thinking of it in a philosophically coherent way. And then another thing I was even not even going to leave on here, I was just not even going to read it to you, but even this is misleading. So that's totally vague. I have no idea what the policy is. What people are saying it means is not in the text. So you have to do some digging. But even the thing, the fiscal impact, it says no direct fiscal effect. This is on the ballot because reproductive rights already are protected by state law. But that's totally misleading. If it changes the definition of reproductive rights, of what it includes and who can have access to it, it could have a tremendous financial impact. And some people are saying that's exactly what it would have. Also, it doesn't say what a no vote would mean. What a no vote would mean is that nothing would change. And right now, abortion is legal up to the point of viability in California. And it's and viability is considered, in some states probably everywhere, uh, that the fetus can survive outside the womb. And in some places it says without significant medical intervention. So, but even after viability, you can still have an abortion. So, I mean, I guess you could have a C-section, but they'll let you have an abortion if the patient's life or health is endangered. So that's what it would be if you didn't have this law. So how would this law, this constitutional amendment, change that? Well, what people are saying is it would expand the right to basically have no limits. And I'm going to read the, like, official argument against this. It's written as, uh, women already have the right to choose under current California law. The recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling did not and will not change this. Prop 1 will allow, now this is the people who are opposed to it, will allow late-term abortions at taxpayer expense without limitation for any reason at any time up to the moment of birth, even when the mother's life is not in danger, even when the healthy baby could survive outside the womb. By allowing abortion without limit, Prop 1 will turn California into a sanctuary state for thousands, possibly millions of abortion seekers from other states at a staggering cost to taxpayers. The pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute itself estimates that California could see a nearly 3,000% increase in the number of people from other states seeking abortions here, with many coming for more expensive late-term abortions. 
the annual out-of-state patient load could climb from 46,000 a year to 1.4 million. Okay, my problem here is I don't want to pay for that. I don't want to be the sanctuary state for that. But I mean, I definitely don't want to pay for it. Like, I just, I, I cannot emphasize that enough. I'm not even telling people what to do. I just, it's crazy. It's unconscionable to to use any, even if they said I could like exempt my taxes from that purpose, my taxes would free up other tax money to be used for that purpose. You can't do it. It should never be federally funded. That's another thing I hate about all this mandating. Everything, things are either banned or they're mandated or they're paid for. Like you can't just step away from it. You can't just not be involved. That goes with the marijuana stuff too. There was a I don't know if it was great worded, but I like the sentiment. Joe Allegria, director of development at the Pregnancy Care Clinic, he says, shouldn't our leaders be asking, how do we render abortion unnecessary? How do we support desperate men and women so they can make informed decisions about their baby? I hope the voters in our state see through the politics and encourage our leaders to find real solutions to abortion. Not just put words on paper, but work like I have to prevent abortion. Jerome Paul says the same thing. It wasn't even the laws. Like culturally, it was changing before then. So for me, I think that's where the focus really needs to be. Like, let us talk about this. Let us put money into adoption. Or people, some people thought orphanages were okay. I've known people who grew up in orphanages and said it was okay. I mean, I'm not even encouraging that. I, I feel like First, first thing, if if there were no abortion in a day, an age of kind of sexual promiscuity or laissez-faire or whatever, people, I mean, a lot of people and a lot of cultures have, have a great deal of unwed pregnancy, pregnancy outside of wedlock. I know illegal immigrants can't actually get married legally here. So I know people like that who have children born out of wedlock just because the laws don't really allow for them to to do it any other way given their status. So if people had the children, it would not be super stigmatized. Like these people I know where if it's common in their communities, it's not it's not superior. And a lot of times the guys are around, but it's just destigmatized. And if there were alternatives or support, I mean Yes, if you want to point the finger at people who would reject their daughters or sons for having parented a child, I mean, you can't do that. You have to not put up these deterrents for them to be honest with you, for them to, it's like the drunk driving thing. Like you don't want to scare your kids into calling you for a ride at two in the morning, like out of calling for a ride. You want them to come to you for help. I'm sorry, but this is a real life situation. Yes, it's better to abstain. It's better to uh, be mature about this. But if it doesn't happen that way, I think it's really important to support people. And maybe having more open conversations and really putting your money where your mouth is to help can help that. But I really think that's where the focus should be uh, and, but f- for sure, I don't think the taxpayer, the, the taxes should pay for it. I was going to say you could offset that with helping pregnant people in need, but I, I really don't think it's okay to use the taxpayer's dollars to do it. But I'll tell you who, now this is something that was a real tell to me. So something like, I don't know, $14 million went to promoting this constitutional amendment 
this ballot initiative and maybe 1 million was raised to oppose it. I think it was 12 million that was in favor of it. 5 million of the $12 million that are promoting this. Okay. So $12 million, 5 million was donated by the Federated Indians of Gratan Rancheria, Gratan, G-R-A-T-O-N Rancheria. Why would they want to do that? It's like Marin County Indian tribe. That is twice what they are spending on the scholarship initiative that's splashed all over their website. They're really, really proud of their $2.5 million scholarship initiative. This is $5 million to get this constitutional amendment on the books. And I don't even think that the Indian tribe has to follow (laughs) the state constitution. I don't even think it affects them. I don't even think it affects them. I mean, it's kind of like an out-of-state contribution. And who the heck is pulling the strings there? Because there are only 1,080 people in the Federated Indians of Graton Rancheria. And there are 39 million Californians. So the average contribution is like $4,500 per member of this tribe, every man, woman, and child, to contribute to this ballot initiative that affects 39 million Californians and not them, you know? So that's the thing that really bothers me about this stuff. Like, I would like to say that these initiatives, these referenda are a reflection of the people's will. But when you're talking about big money like that, and you're talking about really misleading or vague wording, I think that's, that's the biggest problem with this stuff. Now, to contrast the California really vague California amendment and maybe the Vermont one too. Michigan has one that says this is on the ballot in Michigan, notwithstanding the above, whatever that is, the state may, Oh yeah. The constitutional right. The state may regulate the provision of abortion care after fetal viability provided that in no circumstance shall the state prohibit an abortion that in the professional judgment of an attending healthcare professional is medically indicated to protect the life or physical or mental health of the pregnant individual. So the state may regulate the provision of abortion care after fetal viability. I mean, that's a little something, you know, and, and that's the fact that they had to write that in to their constitutional amendment makes me think that it, it was knowingly left out of the California one deliberately. All right, let's hit the marijuana stuff. I'm all for totally no marijuana policy at all. Don't arrest people for it. It's just, it's nothing. It's a weed. It grows up. If you are for gun rights, gun rights are manufactured and sold perforce. I mean, for the most part. This is a weed that you would have to stamp out. They literally had government programs to stamp out this weed. It is a weed that you would have to stamp out. It should just, just let it go. Do not regulate it. Do not tax it. Do not control it. Zero. And I've said this from the beginning. Don't make it a medical marijuana thing because if you do medical marijuana, you have to have a registration card. And you know what? They might ban you from voting or owning a gun. I think they started that in Hawaii a while ago. So I don't want any registration for it at all. I have every right to do whatever I want in that regard. I don't want any regulations at all. Because when you regulate, this is a weed that could grow in your backyard. As soon as you regulate it, then all of a sudden it gets into a system. 
It has to meet certain criteria and it limits competition. This thing is a weed that grows for free in people's backyards. If it was everywhere, nobody would have a profit incentive to push it. No one would sell it. No one would market it. Nothing. Zero. I don't like it. And when you regulate it, a lot of times they put things in that are like barriers to entry. Like it has to have this kind of, you know, certain kind of pesticide and you have to make sure it doesn't have any microbes on it. That stuff, in my opinion, probably makes it worse, less healthy. And then they go on to allow these extreme things, the vape and all that really hardcore stuff. And I just feel like if it was growing free in everybody's backyard, a lot of people would just smoke that. But if you have to go to the dispensary and you have to buy, you know, choice between weed and vape, whatever, you're already going out of pocket. Yeah, maybe you get the vape thing, which I think is really bad. I just don't like it. Um, And I don't like the taxing. Why give an incentive to the government to want to push this? Why make it, you know, I don't know about recording it, but just don't. Just don't give anyone incentives. Don't do that. It's a weed. Let it grow. Let people smoke it. It's fine. And there was actually one one that I thought was super annoying. This was in South Dakota. It says marijuana plants and the marijuana produced from those plants. And actually, marijuana is a totally rude and racist name. <laughs> used to be called Mary Jane, and they hate it marijuana, so it sounded Mexican. Can you believe that? And they, It's not the official name. All right, uh, produced from those plants may be possessed under specific conditions. Marijuana plants may only be grown, and the marijuana from those plants may only be possessed in counties or cities where no licensed retail marijuana store is available or where allowed by county or city ordinances. So you're not allowed to compete with the retail marijuana establishment that taxes and regulates and gets a license with stuff you grow in your backyard That reminds me of the Wheatfield cases that I'm going to talk to Eric Buchanan about this very day, as a matter of fact. So uh, if you're hearing this in real time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Wednesday, November 9th, will be my live dive with Eric. Everybody loves those. But yeah, I mean, I want nothing to do with that. (laughs) It should all, it's just nothing. Or in any case, I don't want anything that would favor regulated, controlled, taxed, corporate weed over the local, what you can grow in your backyard. And actually there was even one in Arkansas that again, the amendment doesn't make it clear, but normal, which is a legalization organization is against it. Another attorney said uh, of it, it's this, the Arkansas bill sets up a system where you're going to have very few individuals controlling the marijuana market in Arkansas. It's not good for consumers. So when I look at the funding, a lot of the stuff is for people who want to make a lot of money in this industry. And then when you start having people making a lot of money, then they want to control you and the product and who can sell it. Boo. <laughs> Boo. All right. Um, so let's talk about this voting ranked choice thing. So the way the ranked choice thing, and the reason I want to tell you about this is because it's confusing. The way the ranked choice works is, say you've got like... You know, on my ballot, there's tons and tons of races. So take any one race, there's going to be five names. You rank them. So some of those names are going to be people you hate. Some are going to be people you love. Some are going to be people you don't know. So you have to rank them. So there are five. You should rank it one to five. That means that you will be casting a vote for somebody you hate, okay? But you are not going to be able to fully participate 
unless you vote for four out of five of those people. Because in the end, it might get down to two people and your ballot, they call it ballot exhaustion. Your ballot might be exhausted before that if you only voted for three people and the race comes down to four. So that disenfranchises a lot of people. Ballots go in the garbage. Maybe 10% of the ballots go in the garbage for that. And then as the rounds continue, some of those, like the least, if the first round gives you somebody who won 50% first choices, then that person wins. After that, every round eliminates one person from the ballot. So people's ballots go in the garbage if they don't have anybody left. And that happens the most for elderly people and undereducated people. They don't really understand exactly how it works. Also, if you accidentally, I don't know if they don't understand exactly how it works, but that little nuance of undervoting is lost on a lot of people. And maybe it's just that it confuses people or they don't want to show up or they just don't want to take that responsibility. I don't know, but that's called undervoting. Then there's overvoting where you vote for two people and you make it both number one. Those ballots go in the garbage. So overvoting and undervoting takes a lot of ballots away. Another thing that it does is the argument is that you'll always get somebody win, winning with a majority. So it's another way of calling this is called instant runoff voting. So you don't like narrow it down to two people and then go back to the polling place, you know, a month from now. But if you did it that way, you would get more participation than the way they do it here, where they eliminate these ballots one after another in rapid succession. It's very complicated and it's hard to understand. But as they eliminate ballot after ballot or person after person, by the end, yes, you will have two people that day and one of them will have 50% or more of that last round of voting. But it's not going, that person is either unlikely or not more likely to have 50% of the votes. It's almost like perforce. It cannot, did I just use perforce twice in the same show? Sorry. (laughs) But it might be true, perforce, that if he didn't have 50% of the actual absolute ballots coming out of the gate, he can't possibly have it by the last round. He'll have 50% of the last round, but who knows how many ballots have been eliminated by then. So oftentimes the person who does win only got 30% of the vote or 40% of the vote. Um, But if you had gone out to a runoff, it would be very clear who the people's choice would be in that last round. So I don't like it. And I don't know why. It definitely seems like a real Democrat push. And I think the it's possible that the reasoning is that you you start not having R's and D's next to people's names. You can manipulate the vote a little more easily. They say that like third parties will have an advantage, but they don't. Third parties get elected less often with this. Now you don't have to worry about people yelling at you for wasting your vote because your second choice would be like if your first choice was libertarian and Republicans were mad at you for splitting the ticket while your second choice is Republican. But it doesn't mean that you're any more likely, you're actually less likely to get a third party in, according to some examples that happen uh, overseas. And also there's just a lot of potential for corruption. There's a lot of counting and recounting on a single day. You have to move ballots around. It's confusing. So uh, there is a a lot of opportunity for corruption and it's hard to understand it. And your votes don't actually get counted. So you would never, so your fifth candidate, maybe it's a libertarian, is going to be the the first person to be eliminated. You don't really know how many votes that person got. Like there is no final tally of how many votes people got because you voted for like four different people and some people got eliminated. 
It's really confusing. It cannot possibly be for the good because things that aren't, aren't transparent are not generally for the good. There is a foundation for government accountability, which I was trying and trying to figure out who's funding that. It definitely seems more conservative than liberal who's really behind it. And then there's the, I think it's called the fair vote organization or the foundation for government accountability is really against ranked choice voting and the fair vote is really for it. And that information that I was just telling you about like how it actually works, there was a Princeton professor studied it. So it's not like it was some obscure, you know, these guys didn't do the actual study. They just printed it. And just in general, if I can't understand something, if the layman can't understand the purpose of it, the implications of it, or even how to do it, that's not okay with me. So the people who want like one vote, one choice or whatever, don't like the electoral college, they want the popular vote, this gets further and further away from that, despite the things that they are arguing it benefits. I don't like it. It doesn't come through with the benefits. From what I can tell, now maybe somebody's going to argue with me, but one interesting thing I found in this FAIR Act, FAIR voting uh, website that's all about this stuff, is that they have this four-pronged strategy of how they're going to get this thing to take over the country, because ultimately they want it for presidents and senators and stuff. And it says, the fourth prong of our four-pronged strategy is to create and nurture resource networks and platforms for state and local RCV organizations that can contribute to change, including winning RCV in at least 500 cities by 2025 as a bottom-up complement to national advances. So what they're saying here is exactly why I think these initiatives, these ballot initiatives are more important than people think for, for the national laws, you know, for the, for the later stages of our, um, democratic evolution, if you were, would, is that they, they do this on purpose. They go to the most vulnerable cities, the bluest cities, whatever, and they get them to implement these laws. And then they kind of become commonplace and they gain momentum and people will spread it around or, at least it's easier to pretend like it's gaining momentum by saying, see, they're doing it and it's working out well. Even when it doesn't work out well, they go ahead and act like it works out well. That's why you need that kind of study to say, hey, this isn't working. And they immediately on there and the fair vote website says, like, you can't make comparisons to these other races. It's totally different internationally, yada, yada. But I am totally at this point not convinced at all. Uh, oh, and I did want to give a shout out to Cecilia, who tweeted at me about an Illinois amendment on the right to collective bargaining. This is a ballot initiative in Illinois. This is like such a completely good example of something that doesn't explain at all <laughs> the entirety of this issue. And it would basically would prohibit right to work laws. So right-to-work laws are meant to uh, separate employment status from membership in unions. In some states, they say you still have to pay like a fee for the collective bargaining that you will enjoy, but you don't have to pay like membership dues that would support political activity. Some places say you don't even have to pay the agency fees, take it or leave it. But I've gotten really anti-union, not because I'm against the principle of it. I'm absolutely not against the principle of it at all. I think collective bargaining is an absolutely fantastic way for labor to join together and counterbalance 
what their employers might hold against them. Employers who may have oligopoly or monopoly status because of the benefits they get from a certain regulatory environment. I think it's great if workers want to band together, but they their tactics matter a lot. Like you don't want um, violent tactics or anything. But now, and I feel this has probably been true for a hundred years almost, uh, but it's clearly true now, especially during the COVID thing with how they treated their the airline pilots. The airline pilots is that the union leaders are absolutely not taking the interest of the individual members of the union at heart to the point where I even think they lied about the sick out of the airplane pilots. So I feel like the union leadership is even more captive than ever. And I'm just against that. But the crazy thing is the people who are in opposition to this law say that it is simply a way to raise property taxes by $2,100 on average per person. And that is nowhere in this amendment. Nowhere in this amendment. You would absolutely never know that if you were just standing in a polling booth reading the little blurb. So, I mean, the devil is in the details. And the campaign financing for this, for, this was the one that was $14 million to one. This is the one that was $14 million in favor of this was raised and only one against because it's only these people who are poised or organizations who are poised to make big, big money who are going to put big money into this. The rest of us can just be like, hey, we don't want that, you know, but where are you going to get the organization and the, somebody's got to stroke a $10 million check to, to put an ad campaign out and stuff? Yes, you raise money bit by bit, but dang, it is an uphill battle. So whew, anyway, voting day is, isn't, isn't the best for a <laughs> liberty-minded lady in LA. Anyway, but but I do think this is my takeaway that the way, just the way I think like process and the legal process is really important. Like don't let them railroad you on the legal process because things might not be as hopeless as you think. Uh, if you just stick to your guns and don't like Raimondo says, like, don't waive your right to a speedy trial. Like start with that. Like know about jury nullification. Like if you know these things, a process is there to work for you. Same thing about policy. The these like one-off things they throw out there, these issues, you need to really understand the issues, the policy implications, because you wouldn't believe how often I, I was talking to a friend, super liberal, old, old school LA gal yesterday. Uh, you might have met her uh, at a Zoom party once or twice. And uh, and I said, Oh, that prop one, you know, this chick is liberal. Like, and it's like prop one, man, it's no good. And she's like, why? And, and I, I said, I think this is what it allows. Like, this is what I think. And she was like, well, that's not right. But it just, it, you can just talk to people. Now I know what that ranked choice voting is. Like, I was like, that is weird, but I don't understand it. Now I understand. I don't know why they they want it. I'm absolutely hundred percent positive. They want it because it will benefit them. But Anyway, that's it. That just my takeaway is pay attention to the issues and really try to understand them. Even if it's just one, even if you only have time for one issue, understand it. Even if you're not going to vote for it, understand it because we have to, we have to counter some of this propaganda with just a little bit of knowledge and share it with the people around you. Even if it's your own kids, even if it's the people in your own house, uh, it's still, it's still worth thinking about and keeping educated. I am Monica Perez. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would enjoy it. And feel free 
to tweet at me, as always, at Monica Perez Show.